Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to the show, and it's good to be back. I was in the battlefields in Natal last week, which were actually fascinating. I was at Isan Luana, Rourke's Drift, and Talana in Dundee, which was the first battle of the Second Anglo-Boer War. It was it's really interesting to have a, a thorough, thoroughly uh, knowledgeable guide, um, and to get the sense, the atmosphere of the places, and, and certainly the, the Isandlwana and Rourke's Drift had an atmosphere that uh, really gave you a sense of a common, a, an imperial giant being humbled by its opposition that it essentially tried to dupe into an agreement that was, was absolutely impossible. One of the little sad things that I, that I, that was at Isandlwana is a monument to the f- members of the first 24th Welsh Regiment, which was almost wiped out at Isandlwana, by fellow soldiers who wanted them to be properly remembered. So they put up this, this cross, and the irony was that the cross was put up by these soldiers in 1913, and I couldn't help wondering if any of the soldiers who put the cross up was still alive by the end of 1918. But very, very worthwhile, and any, if anyone vaguely interested, interested in history, I strongly recommend it. I, I, I was going to start, actually I'm going to start with the relative good news, being in the sort of relaxed mood that I am. The news stole my thunder a bit in talking about the medals that the South Africans have won at the Commonwealth Games. And it's lovely, I mean, four Medals, uh, three gold in the in the swimming, as they mentioned. Uh, Michaela Vitboy won gold in judo, and Charlene Crystal won bronze in in her category in judo. But quite perhaps sweet is the, the fact that the gymnast Caitlin Ruskrans made history when she captured bronze in the women's uneven bars final at the Commonwealth Games and has achieved the first bronze in uneven bars in Commonwealth Games history. I, I think they used to call them step bars in my in my day, but anyway, it, it, it's sort of really feel-good stuff and it makes you makes you just want to smile. But what really, the, the, the two events that really made me want to smile, first was that the Proteas thrashed England in the last T20 by 90 runs. I repeat, by 90 runs, and and in so doing, they won they won the series. But better than that, uh, if I if I if I can put it if I can put it like that, better than that is that the Blitzbox, the the Sevens Rugby, won at the Com- at the Commonwealth Games. They won gold, and I watched. I didn't see the the final, but I watched the the semi final and the the quarter final, and they looked so together and so sort of taut and ready to, to take their opponents on, who were often sort of bigger, physically bigger than they were. But they were just, they were clinical, they were clever, they were strategic. It was wonderful. They did us real, 
really proud. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Well, I feel we must have a little look at the ANC policy conference, which has just been completed. It comes in the wake of, well, the, the, the latter part of the conference comes in the wake of the fact that the KwaZulu-Natal part of the party was literally kicked out um, and replaced by, I suppose, what we would call the uh, RET faction that supports Zuma. So essentially, in that respect, Saul Ramaphosa completely lost his top-level support. I'm not sure if it was a, a great surprise, but uh, they uh, they achieved that. And you have the situation now where you've got a provincial leader coming from that faction and the uh, the head of the province, uh, Tikalala, being sort of the pro Zuma faction. Um, it's usually not tenable for the for the two positions to coexist, even if they. Uh, even if they come from the same faction, they, it's likely to be difficult. But now it is really likely to be difficult. So I suspect Zikalala is going to go, and he will replace, be replaced by the uh, RET faction head. Who, sorry, has, his name has just slipped my mind. So we had this, what in effect was a rebellion against Saul Ramaphosa, but the rest of the conference seemed to have neutralised that rebellion. Um, the KZN cohort seem to really have conceded that their primary fight will occur at the December elective conference where the top six and Soram Raposa himself particularly will be standing for re-election as the president of the party. So we can expect the December conference to be, you know, one of the, and yet another December uh, full of the, the infighting and the hoo-ha and the disputes and the general probably misperformance of the delegates at the at that conference. What what's quite funny, I saw a photograph of it. There was a planned support a protest. Sorry, there was a protest planned against Ramaphosa at the conference, which was led by Carl Nick Niehaus. But he was a lone figure standing there holding his uh, little notice opposing Ramaphosa. It did not attract any support. It was sad, it was funny, and it was embarrassing all at, all at once. However, the, uh, the ANC in KwaZulu-Natal obviously decided that uh, th- this wasn't the place to uh, achieve uh, substantial political gains, and it was reflected in the fa- fact that the step-aside policy, which requires ANC position holders who are charged with crimes, not found guilty, charged with crimes, must step aside pending the outcome of, of any any uh, judicial process. Now, the RET faction wants the step-aside policy to step aside. Um, and it seems like the, although it was the, uh, the main fight of the, of the conference, it essentially was sort of whittled away and the step-aside policy remains. Let's put it this way. If, if the ANC wants to have a shred of, uh, of dignity they, they, that step aside policy has to has to stay, even though it, it has it, it, it's questionable in some of the, some of its motives. But it, it has to have it to have a, a, a level of respect at all within the uh, within the ANC. Similarly, Pravin Gordon, Minister of Public Enterprises and Eskom Management, managed to face down 
the uh, an attack on them over their alleged failures of their power, powerful power utility. It, it just wasn't uh, it wasn't much entertained. And any efforts to build opposition on the conference floor were shut down by that. Or, well, I guess it would be shut down just by his mere presence, ANC chairperson Gwedi Mantashe. And in fact, the efforts to shut down were not generally widely supported. So all in all, all, all the opposition to, uh, to Soror Ramaphosa and his supporters was, uh, was shut down. So obviously it wasn't, it wasn't the time for a full-blown political rebellion, but, uh, you know, there's always December and we'll see how, we'll see how it goes there. The, what, what was quite interesting, <laughs> you get a sense of the desperation of the ANC's position because every cliched policy uh, option for the ANC that's been put forward pretty much came back onto the table. It, it, it was like, you know, we've got to go back to Communism 101 to lead the country out of its, out of its uh, malaise. There was a hard pushback on why the ANC government had not created a state bank and so too a state pharmaceutical company. There was debate on the land question and uh, the resolution on amending section 25 of the constitution to allow for land expropriation. It's And also, you know, the old perennial that the independence of the South African Reserve Bank came under question. So it was almost like we are failing badly, our policies are not working, let's revert to our policies. And as, as one of the papers put out, it went from internal corruption fighting to chemicals, castration for rapists. Everything was on the table. The youth were concerned that they was not, they, they were not uh, involved in, uh, in, involved sufficiently in ANC policy making and suggested a limit on the national executive uh, committee members' terms. I think 60 was the proposed uh, retirement age. Um, I don't think politics pretty much pays much attention to retirement age. But what was what quite interesting was that the Youth League turned down the idea and has expressed that it does not want a separate ministry for youth. Now, currently, the ministry for youth, I think women, youth, and the disabled, and in the presidency, is where the youth gets represented. They did not want a separate ministry for what appeared to be fairly logical reasons. Um, they they just felt that the the, the fight for and by the uh, by the youth has to take place in the larger forum and cannot take place alone. It's a much bigger struggle, which which makes a, a huge amount of sense. So for once, we actually saw. You know, there's some sense coming out of the youth. I, I wouldn't uh, hold on to, for it for too long, but uh, be that as it may, um, that's 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 what came out. Finally, you know, in, there was an article by Tony Leon in the Sun in this this week Sunday Times, where he talks about the uh, the conference and a variety of other things, and he he refers to a what I think is a wonderful term to describe ANC. Uh, policy and ideology, and it comes from the uh, Venezuelan analyst Moises Manaim, describing the, po- the policies such, like, such as this as ideological necrophilia. Ideological necrophilia. Couldn't have said it better myself. I'm going to hang on to that one and use it again in the future. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. 
I would like to pay respect to a colleague who died last week, John Ken Berman, who was the CEO of the Institute of Race Relations for over 30 years. He was an extraordinary fighter uh, for the classically classical liberal cause, probably having an impact way beyond um, way beyond the, the 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 scope of what of of what the IR was trying to do. And so, what I would like to do is introduce our guest, who is uh, Dr. Anthea Jeffrey, head of uh, uh, policy research at the institute, who worked with. Uh, John Kane Berman for for many years um, while he was CEO and subsequently as when he he he'd stepped down and was still and, and was still writing for us. Welcome, Anthea. Thank you, sir, and, and uh, thanks to all your listeners. Um, Anthea, what what do you think in your experience with John was was so strong? What made his his conviction? to fight the cause of classical liberalism, which is not, by and large, exactly a popular cause to fight for. What was it that made him so sort of strong at it, so, in, so, so intensely, he, he believed so intensely in it? I think John had always been deeply concerned about the abuse of power by the state, which was so evident in the apartheid period, that he also understood very strongly that it's the poor who are most vulnerable to any abuse of power and that much of the thinking in the world was also not really helpful to what he called the liberation of the poor, that one of the great strengths of classical liberalism was that it would not target the poor as if they were sort of not really part of the rest of the population with wars on poverty, which generally meant with with welfare payments. Mm. Rather, he thought that it was absolutely crucial that what the government should do was make it possible for the poor to escape from poverty in the same way as everybody else, by joining the mainstream of the economy, by having jobs, by being able to earn their own income and so be self-reliant. And uh, he also, of course, understood, uh, particularly against the apartheid context, the importance of... of, uh, equality before the law. He understood the importance of putting an end to the erosion of due process, which had happened. Mm -hmm. He understood also the importance of uh, not having any discrimination based on race, but rather promoting racial goodwill, as the IRR had in fact sought to do since 1929. And he also understood, again, based on what had happened in the 1980s, the importance of, of a free media And that was also governed by one of the many things he was brave on. During the 1980s, uh, political violence was increasing. The general tendency among most commentators was to to blame only the uh, National Party government and the police, which were were safe to blame and, and often were to blame. But there was also a very large element of violence being driven by the ANC's People's War. And that was being ignored by the many in the press and by many others too. And John thought it was wrong to ignore what was clearly a critical factor in the violence. And so he had the courage to say, we will look at that, even if it has consequences um, for the Institute, for things like his capacity to raise money. Mm-hmm. Crucial when he joined the Institute in 1983, when it was on the verge of bankruptcy, 
If he'd gone with the flow on all these issues, it would have been much easier to raise a great deal of money. Mm-hmm. Instead, he stood on principle and said, there are things that we cannot uh, turn a blind eye to, uh, the people's war, and the need for a classically liberal state in the future, rather than the new form of racial and economic engineering that he understood the ANC would be intent on introducing. In fact, it is this very capacity on the basis of principle to apply to the ANC what had been applied to the apartheid, holding them to the standards of, of, of decency, that led to an extraordinary schism in the in, in race relations history. Um, Indeed, um, yes, because on that because that was that's fascinating. Yes, and I think you know, perhaps the best way of understanding it is, is, is beginning with Jill Vansell's book on the Liberal Slideaway, because she talked about how a particularly important organisation, the Black Sash, which had always been very strong in condemning violence when it came from the apartheid side, fell very silent when the violence began to come from the ANC side. And there was a similar dynamic at work within the IRR when, the, when JKP became uh, the CEO in 1983. Uh, most of the researchers in the organization were essentially in the UDF stroke ANC camp, and they did not want to publish material that would place the struggle in any kind of critical light. So, for example, they were very resistant to, to publishing a description of an Ectus execution. But John felt that one had to look accurately at all aspects of the violence. And, and so there was almost a battle between him and the researchers who stood on the other side of the political fence. Mm-hmm. And I joined the IRR at that point, um, I think quite naive on, on many of the, of the political issues, but not in the NCUDF camp. Mm. And uh, he asked me to start uh, looking at certain issues whether ANC mass action and, I, and whether disinformation was also helping to muddy the waters. And the more I, I was now available to research these issues, and it added to uh, the sense, I suppose, within the, those researchers in the ANC-UDF camp that perhaps the organisation uh, was, was slipping out of their control because there was now more capacity to do this kind of work. So there was more of a showdown, I would think, with John at that point. But he had the courage to say uh, that, you know, to, to stick to his beliefs, that one must look at all relevant aspects of violence, that he would continue to publish material on the people's wall, whether they liked it or not. Mm. And in time, many of these researchers slowly just moved away from the institute. Now, what, I mean, if one thinks about it, um, his, his position and his stand have been vindicated over over the, the, the 30 years of, a, of, the, of the ANC rule and perhaps if much of uh, society and the media in particular had uh, taken a more robust principled position, um, we, we might not quite be where we are now uh, in, uh, under the collapse of, of ANC corruption and incompetence. I think that's absolutely true, and I, I think it goes back to the people's war because the NC was integrally involved and the violence was responsible for a great number of attacks, particularly on its black political rivals. And the upshot was that both black consciousness and also the Encarta Freedom Party were greatly weakened before the transition to majority rule in 1994. So we started our democracy without really what a, one of the most important needs in a democracy was that you should have 
a realistic prospect of the ruling party being voted out of power so that there would be an alternation between one and more parties over time. Um, having destroyed its rivals, the ANC was able to say, as, as Jacob Zuma did, that we will rule till Jesus comes. It had that sort of confidence. And from that sort of confidence also becomes an increasing abuse. Mm. because there is no worry that at some stage you'll lose power and you'll be held to account. Uh, perhaps that's beginning to come in now. Mm. But for nearly 30 years, the ANC has been very confident of its hegemony, and it's used it to do precisely what John feared, to pursue its own form of, of racial and economic engineering, what we now recognize as the National Democratic Revolution, which the ANC was determined to implement from the time it came to power. And, and that, the NDR, is, is effectively aimed at destroying the capitalist economy and taking us to a socialist future. And so the ANC has always been rather careless as to what the impact of its policies have been mm. on investment, on growth, on unemployment, because it, it has a wider ideological objective in mind uh, and its belief that in some way we'll reach the socialist nirvana. So if there's some suffering on the way, that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the media had been willing to recognize the ANC's role in the People's War and its role in destroying its black rivals, if it had been willing to recognize the National Democratic Revolution from an early stage, instead of, in John's phrase, sleepwalking through it, mm-hmm. then it could have blown the whistle on these threats to South Africa's future and we could have more easily tried to mobilize against the, the, the more distrustive aspects of ANC policy. Mm. Now, uh, just to sort of change uh, tech a little, um, John was a financial, uh, sorry, was an, uh, a journalist for many years and, uh, 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 including the financial mail. And you could see it very much in his writing. I mean, for a man with as, as big an intellect as his, his writing for the public was Extraordinary because his, it was, his paragraphs were concise, his, his sentences were sparse. You, you understood exactly what he said and he could say it sort of within 800 words, which is often very difficult. Did, was he, did he make a fundamental impact on the way his, his, his subordinates developed their ability to write and, and present arguments? Because it was an it was an extraordinary feature to portray things that very often, you know, can be very garbled and and wordy. Mm. I think that's right. I, I think it, you know, it began with John's enormous intellect, with his capacity to to see an issue very clearly, to understand it, uh, to distill it down to the essence, and then to convey that essence in a few simple but very compelling words, so that, as you say, in a seven, eight hundred word article, he could communicate the, the, the core of what he wanted to say. And I think that was, of course, important for all the people who worked with him, because it sets such an extraordinary example of what could be achieved and in terms of succinct writing. And because he really wanted also to make sure that people didn't use unnecessary words, that they cut to the core, that every article was as paired and as precise as could be achieved. Um, perhaps I can just relate the anecdote we heard this week from our colleague Herman Pretorius, who had been with the, the Institute a few years, and he came in as an in, intern and was given a, a large project um, a report to put together. I don't know the details of it. And he ran hither and thither doing doing the work and uh, 
Herman, one must bear in mind, is home language Afrikaans, his English is way beyond mine. Uh, he, he speaks absolutely beautifully. And he was summoned to John's office. And so he goes there into depredation and the report is given to him and there's one word underlined in green. I gather green was the preferred color. In law, we used to use red, which was really, you could see pages bleed if we had enough mistakes. <laughs> and he, he said to, he said to Herman, data is a plural, not a singular. Data are, not data is. And, and that's, to some extent, the, a, a sense of the pernicketiness of the man, um, perhaps, and at the same time, absolute attention to detail, because the rest of the report, by all accounts, was absolutely fine. Exactly. Now, John would pick up on anything that he thought was wrong. He would be correct. He would have, you know, his, his, his own sense of grammar and so it was impeccable. But he did set these high standards and he wanted them to be maintained. And he, he was also an extraordinarily hardworking person. And for, for many years, he edited the survey, our South Africa survey, which comes out every year, uh, which is a kind of handbook of South Africa, a yearbook, one might call it. And it, it would run to 800, 900 pages and he would edit it all and make sure that there were no mistakes in it, that every bit of data that could be cross-referenced where the same information came up in different chapters was was checked to make sure it was correct throughout. He had that kind of attention to detail and yet he also had this capacity to stand back and see the big picture. And I, th- I think it's just worth saying in terms of seeing the pic- big picture, he saw... Two of the things he saw, we've already talked about. He saw the ANC's role in violence in the People's War. He saw the need for an open democracy rather than the racial and the economic engineering. But even in the apartheid era, he saw something else, that we didn't need to have a violent revolution, that ordinary South Africans were busy putting an end to apartheid in any event. Mm. And so he published a little book called South Africa's Silent Revolution, which was an enormously important set of insights into how apartheid laws were crumbling because they couldn't be enforced and how the political and economic independence of black and white South Africans was growing so much. With this level of economic interdependence, you couldn't maintain the political separation and so it was inevitable that apartheid would go. And that was also a very unpopular view in the 1980s and yet John had the evidence for it and so therefore he stuck to his perspective and of course he turned out to be right. Uh, We had a negotiated resolution in the end. One of the things that he's, you know, that flows through the Institute from his time is his being a real practitioner of the battle of ideas theory. What, what, what is the battle of ideas theory? I think the idea is that, um, where you have contesting views, you know, for uh, his belief in classical liberalism, the ANC's belief in a national democratic revolution aimed at a socialist outcome, the side that will win at the end of the day is the side that has put the most information and analysis into the public debate. So that at some point when a crisis develops and the society has to choose between going one path or the other, as I said, the side that has put the most information and analysis into the public, whose views have become most familiar to the public, will be the side that tends to prevail. 
And he applied this undoubtedly in the apartheid period. He recognized that, 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 that apartheid would reach this crisis point where it couldn't be sustained. And what he and many others were doing was were drip feeding mm. the principles of classical liberalism into the society all the time. The importance of the rule of law and equality before the law and due process, the importance of free speech, the importance of ending racial discrimination, uh, the importance of liberating the poor, the importance of growth focused policies, uh, the importance of a, of a limited but effective state, the importance of, of fundamental liberties. And all these had been so, uh, had been given so much prominence, I think, by the time the negotiation process began, that it wasn't really easy for the, the ANC to do what it would have preferred to do, to have an even more centralized statist constitution. Instead, there are many liberal aspects to our constitution, as many of, of, of the fundamental civil liberties in the Bill of Rights are, are, are come from classical liberalism. And those have not always been upheld by the ANC, of course, but they, they couldn't be ignored. What John and many others had done um, was they had made them so familiar to millions of South Africans who wanted to have them for themselves that uh, the ANC was really found it necessary to include them in the Constitution, though I fear its, its underlying view was that it would white ant and erode them over time. IFM. 101.9 megahertz of life. And Phil, one thing which was interesting was his ability to sort of connect and make and form relationships with important people um, locally and internationally. Uh, as a student, he, he got Robert Kennedy out to visit South Africa um, as he worked for Helen Sussman's campaign at some point. And most interestingly were it was his relationship with former Assistant Secretary of State Chester Crocker, who had the fundamental role in shaping American policy towards Southern Africa, particularly in the last two decades of apartheid. He also had some impact on uh, suggesting questions to Margaret Thatcher to use to to challenge uh, P.W. Boerter at Chequers in 1984. That's That's quite a... Um, that's quite a feat, given the fact that the sort of prevailing view is a much more left of center, the, with the, the large swathe of, of anti-apartheid bodies in Europe and America supporting the ANC and, uh, and the Scandinavian countries in particular. What, what, what was it that managed, that managed to make him make those, those very solid, very high level connections? I suppose it began with his writing, Sarah. If you think about the fact that uh, he was a, a foreign correspondent for many prominent periodicals, newspapers, uh, in the time before he joined the IRR. And I have no doubt but that his analysis was as crisp and as insightful as, as we knew it later to be. And that was impressive in itself. He was um, also very often asked to, to speak at important events because he had such a capacity to draw all the relevant facts and developments together to show and really to unpack for people a different way of looking at issues. And I'm sure this was enormously valued. And he had such obvious integrity and um, he 
yeah, he would tell the truth as he saw it, and people knew that they could rely on him to do that, which required a great deal of bravery, as you were saying, that the tide of opinion was going the other way. But John would always stick to his guns and his perspective, which he had thought through and, and which uh, he would therefore continue to argue for against opposition. And I believe that this would have impressed many people. He was so obviously such an intellect and yet a man of great compassion, a man of great integrity and a man of great bravery. The, uh, he, he, you know, he himself said his weapon was ideas and, and, and shaping and influence and being fearless and unhesitating. At the same time, one has to accept that he, he could be a difficult man to work for. Um, as you said, he was sort of very exacting and uh, very clear as to what he wanted. So he wasn't always uh, an easy man to be around in that respect. But my impression is that a lot of the great liberal thinkers – and although liberalism is really underpinned, essentially underpinned by compassion, often people who are sort of personally in, in, in inter- interactions with them, not always that uh, that easy to get on with. The certainty makes them sometimes a little, shall we say, uh, obstinate. <laughs> I, I guess I'm aware of, of many people have had these sorts of run-ins with John uh, as staff members. And I always saw it really as being because he was uh, a perfectionist, that he set very high standards for himself, he set very high standards for others, and he wanted those standards to be upheld. I always thought he was an excellent editor too, mm. uh, because he would simply ask questions. He would see what the weaknesses were mm. in a particular piece, and then he would ask questions, and and people would be guided to seeing what they had left out, to recognizing what was wrong and what needed to be put in. But there would also be times, as, as Herman Pretorius discovered, where uh, data is would be crossed out and turned to data are, mm. <laughs> because that was so obviously correct, and people must now just do it. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think perhaps the, uh, the, uh, the common thread from most of the people who would have worked under him, whether they you know, were intimidated or, or, or not, is that, is that, is that editing? They learned to be much better writers as a result. And if you write, be- if you write well, you can communicate your ideas better. And, and as a consequence, we, we've tried to keep up that sort of drip feed into the, into the media. And there's no doubt we, we in the media probably more often than most NGOs in the political sphere. Yes, that's right. And, um, it's also very important when you get the opportunity to be in the media that what you say is clear and to the point. And John excelled at that. Mm, absolutely. And Theo, thank you very much for coming on and giving us your insights into a remarkable man um, who's really set a very high bar for the uh, way in which and the determination with which we have to put forward classically liberal ideas. Um, thank you, and uh, we'll see you again in the future. Thank, thank you, Sarah. In the future. Thank you. Interesting thing about uh, John, from a personal point of view, is he appears to have been uh, influenced by his very much by liberal parents who took an interest, an active interest in the uh, in, in political affairs, and was influenced by teachers at his school at, Ro- uh, at uh, St John's. Went to Wurtz, became a Rhodes Scholar, 
and it, what was quite funny about becoming a Rhodes Scholar is that, you know, much wonderful as life appeared to have been in Oxford, um, he did find the politics and the issues that were being dealt with in Britain somewhat mundane. I think uh, most of us uh, would would uh, would would say this would say the same thing, um, but there was nothing uh, mundane about the way John uh, presented ideas and uh, the way he 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 really pushed people to to take on the boldness and the courage. And it, it, certainly, presenting classical liberalism takes courage because it's not a popular ideology. Although that's really strange because it is. Probably the most simple to explain. It's about, you know, freedom of speech, the rule of law, the right to own private property, the right to pursue the vocation of your choice. It's, 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 it's literally the, the, the impact can be huge, but it's literally that simple. And we, we sort of firmly believe that, you know, that is the answer. To my societies and certainly to our society and uh, we'll keep pressing for it and the method we will use is uh, persuasion, persuasion, persuasion until eventually, hopefully, people come over to our way of thinking. Um, we do not do revolutions, dialectics uh, or, or anything else. Um, we, our, our ideas are simple. They they are about the primacy of the individual. It's not to say that, the, that we don't recognize the importance of groups and group identity, but if you protect the individual and you give the individual rights, the group is protected. But if you protect the group without regard to the individual, the individual can be severely and badly affected by the uh, by the negative activities of a group. So we owe John a great debt of gratitude and you know, he, he literally set the rock that for, pe- for people, particularly youngsters who come over to classical liberalism from more radical uh, philosophies, find a home and go out and express it. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. I want to just go back briefly to Tony Leon's article. And he notes that nearly seven years ago, Sir Ramaphosa assured us assured Parliament that in another 18 months you will forget the challenges that we had with relation to power and energy and ESCOM ever happened. He then goes on, uh, and I quote him, it seems almost cruel to remind ourselves that in 1879, more than 140 years ago, Thomas Edison devised the commercially viable electric light bulb and the first electric utility company. Or that in 1994, under the unlamented National Party government, and for a population some 20 million smaller, ESCOM was generating around 30% more electricity than it does today, at a relatively cheap cost to both generator and consumer. And this is this is the this is the punchy part. Edison, he describes as an inventive genius and a savvy businessman, offered a profound thought that applies to Ramaphosa's latest offer to end the power cuts. He said, vision without execution is hallucination. And I think uh, our current government, government is uh, looks like it's on a magic mushroom trip of hallucination um, because so many of the options recommended by those in the private sector, by ordinary citizens, by people who understand the issue of electricity 
provision just have not been paid attention to. And it always comes as a result of the policy of cadre deployment, black economic empowerment, and not having in crucial areas the people who know how to do the job, whatever their color may be, and who through doing the job and having young people working for them pass on that knowledge to the youngsters. And, and so an organization sustains itself over time as a quality entity. I think I've said it before that it doesn't matter what one studies academically or theoretically. The difference between the theoretical and, and being confronted by the practical workplace is indescribably huge. And it is that workplace experience under the tutelage of people who know what they're doing that is crucial. And that is the, probably the biggest mistake the ANC made was in its bid to rid state institutions of white expertise. It just took in people based on the, uh, on their, their black economic employment status or their connectivity suitability through the cadre deployment process. And the tragedy of that is that those white skills were perfectly situated to train young, white, black, Indian colored skills coming up underneath. It didn't matter what color they were, but the training was was crucial. It wasn't crazy of saying, just chucking things out because they, they happened under the old regime. They had to be looked at on their own terms. Did they produce a positive result for society? And could their impact on the people under them be replicated into the future? And the ANC government kind of got that all wrong. So with that profound and rather depressing thought, um, thank you for joining me. I should be here next week. I'm just not quite sure what the situation is with the public holidays. I will have to check on it. But certainly the week after, uh, we will have more to delve into and get excited about. Thanks for joining me.